We are in a new series, and I have been looking forward to this for some time, uh, getting into the book of Exodus. So if you're new to your Bibles, it's your second book in the Bible, right near the front. Uh, I'm going to encourage you to open up your Bible, a physical, real Bible, as I'm, I'm teaching, and we're going to be doing that every Sunday. If you don't have one, there's a bunch at the back. Grab one. That's our gift to you, or even just borrow it for the Sunday. We're, we've been reading such piddly portions of Proverbs. That's my alliteration for the morning. We're going to read a lot of scripture uh, in this series, and so I hope you're looking forward to that. So uh, open up to Exodus chapter 1. I'll be reading from verse 6 all the way to chapter 2, verse 25. So almost two chapters this morning. They also should be on the screen behind me. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country." So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. Then Pharaoh, king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Sipra and Pua. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? When the Hebrew women, oh, sorry, they were, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and they have their babies so quickly that we cannot get there in time. So God was good to the midwives, and the Israelites continued to multi multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, throw every newborn Hebrew boy into the Nile River, but you may let the girls live. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen to him. Soon Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river and her attendants walked along the river bank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she, went, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. 
Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you, she asked. Yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother. I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Later, when the boy was older, his mother brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her own. The princess named him Moses, for she explained, I lifted him out of the water. Many years later, when Moses had grown up and went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. The next day, Moses went out to visit his people again. He saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend? Moses said to the one who started the fighting. The man replied, Who appointed you to be our prince and our judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid, thinking, Everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. And Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. When Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters who came as usual to draw water and fill the water troughs for their father's flocks. But some other shepherds came and chased them away. So Moses jumped up and rescued the girls from the shepherds. Then he drew water for their flocks. When the girls returned to rule their father, he asked, Why are you back so soon today? An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds, they answered. And then he drew water for us and watered our flocks. Then where is he, their father asked. Why did you leave him there? Invite him to come and eat with us. Moses accepted the invitation, and he settled there with them. In time, Reuel gave Moses his daughter Zipporah to be his wife. Later, she gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom. For he explained, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. Years passed, and the king of Egypt died. But the Israelites continued to groan under the burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose to God. God heard of their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it, knew it was time to act. This is the reading of God's word. I forgot to invite you, something we're going to be doing throughout this series as we read larger portions of Scripture. Uh, as we close, I will say... This is the reading of God's Word, and you respond saying, Amen, or, or if you want, Amen, we'll accept both. Um, and, and just to give you anticipation and reverence for the book that we're reading. So let's try that again. This is the reading of God's Word. Okay, that was my bad, so we'll, we'll, we'll get that right. Um, I, I am so looking forward to this series, because the book of Exodus, which is the second book of your Bible, second book of a series of books which are in the Hebrew Scriptures as well as our Old Testament, uh, form the second act of what is called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch means five books. Um, and it's the, the story that, that, that builds to the story of us. Exodus speaks to the naming, claiming, rescue, and redemption of God's people. You're going to see, and in fact, this morning as we introduce this series and the book of Exodus as a whole, just we're going to spend our time highlighting themes that are going to be throughout Exodus, but actually help us understand Scripture as a whole. Because what we want to do is we spend the coming weeks walking through this story, this incredible book, is to see that 
This is a book that will give you good handles, a good ability to understand your Bible and its overarching themes as well. In fact, I would encourage you this way. God is a God who sees and hears his people, acts on their behalf, and he does so because of his covenant promises to them. In fact, the fact that God sees and hears his people is exactly, excuse me, how, how the book starts. If you don't know this, and I mentioned that this is the second act of, a, of five books, so we have to at times step back and understand what has happened to this point to understand where we are, and sometimes zoom out in the larger context of the first five books of our Bible to understand. We would know this, that God throughout his action on behalf of his people has been focused on a family. From Genesis 12 to this moment in the story, God has said to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, you are my people. He makes a covenant. Covenant means a promise. In fact, we don't have great representation of what a covenant is in our culture except for that of a marriage. Because it's a promise that says, you are mine and I am yours. It's that I will be faithful and remain with you no matter what. That's when we see and hear the vows of, you know, in rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. God says to Abram and his family, you are mine and I am yours. Which extends to Isaac and to Jacob. Jacob who has 12 sons and those sons who betray one of their own sell him into slavery. Joseph who goes into slavery in an Egyptian's house ends up in an Egyptian prison. But from there through God's providence and his love is raised to second most in position over Egypt, prime minister over the ancient superpower of Egypt, where God uses him to preserve the family in a time of famine. And God foreshadows this in the book of Genesis. He says to Abraham, your descendants will spend 400 years in Egypt. There's been a time period of about 400 years Several generations between Genesis and where we pick up the story now. And in that time, a group of what was about 70 people has grown not from a family into a large family, but a nation. And God's eyes, his ears are on his people, the nation of Israel. Israel being the name that God gives to Jacob. And where we don't see in scripture a reference to the sons of Abraham anymore, but the people of of Israel. What's remarkable about this is it says in verse 8, at a time where Pharaoh, king over Egypt, did not know Joseph, everything changes. You, you can imagine that. Joseph, who is raised from obscurity in, in a time of great need, to serve in a, a unique capacity to win favor so that God's people can live in the most fertile land available under the watchful eye of an ancient superpower where they can grow and multiply in abundance. Everything turns when the Pharaoh goes, I don't know Joseph. He has no lineage or family that I should recognize him. And these people, they have grown so numerous, they're a threat. And so he deals shrewdly with them. He, he devises a, a, an evil plot. 
he acts like a, a bully because you see that he begins by going, I, you know what, I can't turn the hearts of Egyptians against the Israelites right away, so I'm going to act in the shadows, and I'm going to go to probably the easiest group of people I can push around. He's going to go to a group of women, working class women, likely as he spoke to the midwives who were representatives of a larger group of women that would help the preparation, the birthing, and aftercare of mothers. He goes to them and he says that you're going to watch and to kill. If there's any newborn son in Israel, by your hands they should die. Now, I want to hang on that for a moment. That, that men, let me talk to you for a moment. If you've ever misstepped into a bridal shower... Or, or to a baby shower, I should say. Bridal shower would be even weirder. <laughs> or, or a delivery room, or the bedside of a new mother. And, and amidst a group of women who are cooing and gushing and, and ooing and aahing over a baby, you know they're four children. You do not get into a line of work where that's all you do unless you are four children. You love children. This would have been so disagreeable to every fiber in the, in the being of these women that they, 50-50 chance, if it's a girl, let it live. If it's a boy, you are its last, the last thing it'll ever see. Pharaoh is not only grotesque and dark and evil, he's being a bully. He's, you do my dirty work. And, and you have to love this because they feared the Lord. They didn't. Whenever you see in Scripture that the fear of the Lord, I, want you, I invite you to see, uh, we, we get hung up on that. We think fear means uh, like a, a, a phobia. But fear means a rightly placed understanding of yourself. Fear means that I understand who I am in light of who God is. It's a moment of clarity. It's like when you go to the mountains and you go, I am so small. Or when you look up at the stars and you go, creation is so big. You know how finite and, in, and, and simply insignificant you ought to feel. When you understand God for the fullness of his majesty and his grace, you know the awe that is a rightly placed fear of God. And you will not step outside his design. So we know that there is something inside of them that is orchestrating in their thoughts and in their hearts better to disobey Pharaoh. And to go against creator God. You know, and that's remarkable in itself. Because Pharaoh in the ancient world, he, he's not only the, the superpower of the ancient world, but he was revered as a God. You know that there was a fear of the Lord because they're like, you're not God. The God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. And though it might cost us, though it will likely cost us greatly, we will obey him. And, and you have to appreciate the back and forth. You actually giggled. The first service didn't, so I appreciate that you did. Because what do they do? Well, hey, when, when Pharaoh asked, and he's going to ask as little Hebrew baby boys are running around the streets, what gives? I thought I gave you pretty explicit orders. And they're like, Pharaoh, you don't understand. Hebrew women... Like, by the time we arrive, they are cleaning, baby in hand, and putting the furniture back. 
There, and, and Pharaoh believes it. Why? Because it confirms his worst fear. That these people multiply like bunny rabbits and they're ready to take over the kingdom the moment they can walk. So perhaps these midwives have a point. And, and, and see what the Lord does. That he sees them and he hears them because they feared the Lord and they did not acquiesce to evil. They did not choose to walk in darkness but stood out exposed in God's brilliant light. It says that God blessed them with families of their own. You've heard the expression, always a br- uh, bridesmaid, never a bride. Always a midwife, never a mom. That God gave them what their hearts wanted most. In a time of most uncertainty that a Hebrew woman would have a family, God gave them a family. I mean, you got to love that. How many of you, like, 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 come on, this is right on the surface, Canadian culture. How many of you go home and you're like, God, do you hear me? Do you see me? Do you see what's going on? Like, everything is going off the rails. Will you take care of me? And God's word reminds us again and again and again. There's this theme that, that he wants to drill into our hearts. I see you. I hear you. My eye is always attentive to my people. My ear is always inclined to their voice. And he calls us out of darkness. You know, let me just side note, but you got to love this. The superpower of the ancient world, a male voice who is revered like a god, is thwarted by a group of women. I mean, that'll preach. You know, I'm waiting still for the one lady to go, amen. Like, (laughs) midwives, a, a, a faithful mother. A, 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 a spunky sister. And, and then, you know what? The one person who you know is going to defy daddy's or- orders? The, the princess of Egypt. God uses them to orchestrate his grace in huge uncertainty. And, and I got to say this because it's, it's, it's enough there that I have to speak into it. I, if you're single, how I love you and, and, and my heart goes out to you. Time and time again, I'm sitting down with, you know, young 20 and 30-year-olds who are looking for that special someone, and their hearts are heavy because they're like, I don't want this app. I don't want to go to these places and these events. But that's where the people are. And so I, I acquiesce to darkness to hopefully get the thing I want, and I don't. And then they go through this cycle of regret and sorrow. And let me just say this. If you particularly... Ladies, if I can step into this place, if you want a good and godly man, go, go find a church that you think has the capability to raise one and stay there. And guys, if you want that kind of girl, become one. And that's what, this is, like, I pray that that's Mission Hill, and if it's not, we'll send you and bless you to be in that church because that's how we grow, not by acquiescing to darkness, but by a fear of the Lord saying, you know what, this is going to be harder. This is going to hurt. This this is going to be difficult. I'm going to go and stand in the light. In fact, I would encourage us this way. Exodus reveals that evil does not sleep. It grows bolder and bolder that it might reach beyond the shadows. Notice how Pharaoh operates, how he escalates. I can't bully I can't turn the greater populace against Israel. So I'm going to give the order that 
every Egyptian has the right to enter the homes of Israelites and take their sons and throw them into the Nile. Like, just let me translate that for us for a moment. Because of your nationality, it would be the same that somebody could kick open your door, steal a baby from your arms, and throw them into the Bow River, and you were powerless to do anything about it. What, what Pharaoh is effectively doing in this, he's, he's building beyond culturally accepted distinctions. There was always a distinction, no matter what the culture, second-class, first-class citizens, first-class citizens and slave cultures. But now he's making the distinction. There are the citizens of Egypt and there are vermin Israel. These people are pests and they need to be dealt, dealt like that. His plan is this, that, that we're going to eliminate the boys, but we'll keep the girls. Why? Imagine a generation without fathers, without husbands, without leaders, without the names of family lines. It would end. But the girls have somewhat of a value in the economy. They, they were facing a generation of horrific abuse to be trafficked, enslaved, to be bred out of the country. This was Pharaoh's plan. And you have to imagine that at one point there were warm relations between Israelites and Egyptians. But that was cut off as not everyone probably turned into a homicidal maniac. But to do nothing, it made it a very clear distinction between two groups of people. God's people and everybody else. And, and, and I want to help you with your Bible reading in this. Scripture only presents two groups of people. God's people, and then everybody else. And it's remarkable. I mean, I challenge you as you, we are inviting you to get into this book with some depth over the next course of weeks. Read it and see if it's not there. That, that we see that this isn't the story of an ancient superpower, but rather the rise and fall of an ancient superpower as a nameless group of slave people are brought into the foreground and God blesses them to become the vehicle for his redemption and salvation of all people. See, Scripture tells us this, that God not only sees and hears his people, his focus is solely on them. Church, you should get excited. Because if you think you're powerless, you know what, we're, we're just not in a position of influence. What can we change? What can we do? You know, if we were to say the story and the history of our city is made in the room of city council, you are wrong. That there is more influence in the heavenly places that God's narrative and his story, which is the only story, is that his eyes on his people. That's us. So there's more authority here. As we come to him, call on him in prayer, that he hears us and he sees us. Like that should rally and excite our hearts. Now, I would encourage us this way. Not only do we see this horrifying plan come to be, and we know that despite the encouragement of the midwives and their families, the faithfulness of God to provide for Moses, there was horrific things happening all around them. But in the middle of that, God provides a deliverer is born God's heart is always towards his people and if you're wondering Aaron why, why are you hammering and emphasizing this point well I'm glad you asked because it's the real power to move 
defy, shape the world as we know it does not exist in the rooms of power as we think they are, but it exists in God's people. Church, that if we only understood that God acts on behalf of his people, um, jump to chapter 2, verse 2. See, in, in your translations, with the one I read, it says that as Moses is born, his, his parents see that he is a special baby. Now, in the King James, it would say a goodly baby, which a lot of commentators see that as probably healthy, robust, physically uh, fit. But I would actually argue that it's, it's speaking to something much more, that, that Moses had the greatest gifts available to him in that day, Parents who were obedient and feared God so much so that they were willing to defy the word of Pharaoh. They were willing to risk big, risk everything that he would have a chance. To have a a sister that would wait in the reeds to ensure his safety. To to know that value and to experience it means that that he had a, a chance like few others. Church, like, It's in the text, so I don't feel bad saying it, but I'm not simply saying this to get you to sign up for kids' church. The most important ministry we have is our kids. Like, I say that as a dad who who loves my children and loves yours, that our most important ministry in this church is our kids. That that we would invest in them, that that we would have the courage to to go against the stream and and to stand up and take hits and sacrifice big so that they have a chance to know and to grow in Jesus. And we see that Moses gets that. We actually see that um, God is moving in the background so that his love, his majesty, his plan would be so evident in the foreground. you got to see this, that you will not understand how God works on our behalf unless you understand that God sees and hears you first. Because otherwise, we would simply look at this and go, that's circumstance, happenstance, it's good fortune. But what are the chances? I mean, think of the symbolism as a mother who, who gives up her child and God returns that child. As a, as to, to, to surrender to the water. Water was a symbol of chaos and death. And yet to, to know that that child would not only live, but live an incredible life. I mean, these are, these are themes that are right there. And what's maybe not explicit, but implicit in the text is what we would know to be true. That God is moving in all these things. Do you think it's a happenstance? Do you just think it's good fortune that that basket comes to Pharaoh's daughter? The one person, the one woman in the nation probably who could go, oh, I can provide a future for this child. And you got to love the, the back and forth between Moses' sister and Pharaoh's daughter. You know, out pops from the reeds. I know somebody who can nurse the, the child. It's like, I bet you do. Go tell mom her baby's okay, and I'll pay her to take care of him. Like God in his grace acting on our behalf. We, we see this again and again in the story, and yet we're a people that does this. God, are you really there? God, can you really save? God, can you really move in this? So much so that we even see that kind of fluctuation in Moses' heart. Because I told you that God is a God who sees us, hears us, who acts on our behalf, and he does so through his 
faithfulness to his covenantal love. You see, I can only speculate in this regard, but I think I'm pretty safe. I think these key relationships in Moses' development were, were part of what helped his wiring to be a man who I believe was called a lot earlier than what we see in the opening or the chapters we're going to look at in the next few weeks of his calling. He was wired to intervene. I mean, think of the stories that are not in the story. Why did he get up one day and go, I'm going to go visit my people? Why was his heart stirred to the right emotion of rage and anger when he sees the brutal enforcement of slavery on his people by an an Egyptian? Why did he jump to the rescue of, of shepherd women when they were being mistreated? Because it was in his wiring that he, he, I wonder, to have the compassion that he needed and to have the constitution of a leader, God said, I'm, I'm going to allow you to be born amongst this people, but raised in Pharaoh's home and then evicted for a season so you can stir and grow to be the man I need you to be. In fact, I would, I would encourage you with this. DL, a friend of mine reminded me of this quote, D.L. Moody's quote saying, 40 years Moses spent thinking he was a somebody, 40 years learning he was a nobody, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. You see, as, as Moses is, is stepping into this place, he, he missteps. You know, I would argue this, that, that it, it, he didn't derail, but he certainly delayed God's plan when he murdered an Egyptian. And consider the, the fear that, that it raises in his heart. The next day he goes down and it's like, you know, deja vu, two, two Hebrews are fighting. He's like, guys, come on. And they're like, who made you prince? Who made you judge? Are you going to do to us what you did to that Egyptian? And what does his heart say? <gasps> Everybody knows. My, my, I'm exposed. My, my deepest secret, my deepest fear, criminal, murderer, fraud. And so he runs and he hides. And there's a bitter sweetness here. I mean, there's a, there's a sweetness that, that in his hiding, God provides what? A bride, a son, a family. But the bitterness of that is that He says, I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. You know that in Scripture, and if you don't know, this is for free, that whenever somebody is given a name or or when somebody names somebody else, it has great significance to tell you what God is doing in the story or in their hearts. And when he names his son, I am a foreigner in a foreign land, it's as if he's picking up his son, and every time he looks him in the eyes, he says, I don't know who I am anymore. Born a Hebrew, raised an Egyptian, living in exile amongst the Midianites. Who am I? And you have to wonder, like, he's a shepherd. I would argue, I don't even know if he's a good shepherd. The one thing he seemed to do well was, you know what, I I know justice and injustice, and I'll throw myself in the mix. But for the remainder of his life, which we don't see the stories here, he's shepherding his father-in-law's flocks. And you can imagine what's reverberating in his thoughts and in his empty, uh, empty spaces. You know, you are a fraud. You're a nobody. You're 
brought into Pharaoh's house and kicked out just as quick. You're a criminal. You're a murderer. You're done. The very thing that he feared most that, oh, everybody knows, exposed and run out. Listen, I, I say these things, and, and church, I want you to hear these things for two reasons. First is simply this. Some of you hear this, and you resonate because the very thing which you were afraid others, that, that you would experience and that others might come to know about you that you think would disqualify you has happened, and you think you're done. You think there's no returning and there's no coming back. And yet the book of Exodus, the story of God, is one of, of naming, claiming, rescuing, and redeeming. God's not done with him. Yes, delayed, not derailed. Moses, I wonder if, as a shepherd, he just needed to learn that, you know what? He needs to spend a lot of time with his ears directed to the Lord and his heart focused on the sheep. That'll make a good leader. One that doesn't fling himself into every cause, but has perspective and pause to know what he ought to do. But you, you see this kind of back and forth taking place. In fact, I would argue if you were to flip to chapter 4, there's this really weird part in the chapter where God is angry towards Moses, and it's because Moses doesn't circumcise his son. And so I'm sure there's two questions that arise from that. One is, why is God angry? And two, what is circumcision? You can ask the person next to you. <laughs> circumcision was the sign of the covenant. Your, your, your texts will actually say that. In other words, it was an outward symbol of inward truths that I receive and identify as God's person. That, that he is mine and I am his. And when Moses fails to do that, that was the one thing he had to do. That was the one thing that was God's people's. Uh, from Abraham onward, it was almost like him going, you know what, God, I, I don't know if I'm yours, and I don't know if you're mine. This had worked so deep into his heart that in the next chapters we're going to see as God calls him, says, time to go back, my son. He is going to give every excuse possible. And I don't think that comes from a place of false humility or insecurity. I think that comes from a place where he's going, no, no God, I'm cooked. I'm done. And God in his grace is like, you're not done. And then God in his anger is like, you're, you're done when I say you're done. Church, we need to embrace that because secondly, we, we live in an age, and if you're dialed into the evangelical church, you know this to be true. All of our superstar leaders, it's like one after the other, scandal, failing, falling, disappointment after the other, and we live in a canceled culture, so we just love to be like, well, delete that guy. You can't send that book to friends anymore because you know what he did. And the problem with that is... Yes, there are consequences for our sin. Yes, there's pain and there's torment in our failing. But the gospel is that there is redemption on the other side. Church, we need to be a church that deals ruthlessly with sin but relentlessly pursues restoration. I mean, we got to get excited about that. We're... Well, you know what, he, that, that's all of our story. If you follow Jesus, this is, this is entrance into the family. I was but am no longer because of Christ. None of us have a great story, clean resume. 
All of us, like Moses, have that thing where like, oh, everybody knows. And you might have to sit out for a while, but not indefinitely. Church, I want you to hear that. Because I know for some of you, as we're coming to a close here, you hear this and this is you right now. You're in that space where you're like, I don't know if God's going to use me. I think I'm done. Weekly, I get to sit with leaders and pastors who either they're through their own failing or through their own struggles or by quitting too soon, go, I think I'm done. And I, I get to ask them, like, do you read your Bible? Because if, if you're done, then you should be dropping dead soon. But if you have air in your lungs and a, a heartbeat, that means God's doing a work to bring you back. But here's the work that you need to do is to allow him to know that he sees you, know that he hears you, to know that he's working on your behalf. Why? Because his heart is towards you. And if you don't believe that, here's the joy that you can rest in. We know this, that the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant is in his son. Now, the, Moses was the first, but not the only one to be born under great persecution where a king was killing sons. To, to have to go into hiding. To be raised up as a deliverer and yet the people to say, who made you deliver over us? And yet there's a different name. Moses said, I don't know who I am anymore. Jesus, his name was Emmanuel, God with us. He said, I'm here for you. I always move towards you. That, that Christian, if you know this, you, you get to sink your feet into a firm foundation that there is a future hope because your past hope is secure. And if you don't know that, that I'm going to pray in a few moments. And if you want to receive that, that you can pray in the quietness of your heart. Good news, God hears it. And you can enter into that space to know his heart is towards you, that he sees you, hears you, will act on your behalf. In fact, he's done that in the greatest capacity ever imagined in sending his son. So let me pray. And church, we're, we're closing this way today. So after I'm done praying, you are, you are sent not to go, but to go to the ministry fair and hopefully get connected to our church a little better. So, Father, we, we lift up, I lift up this church, and I pray uh, for those, Lord, who feel disqualified. Lord, that the season of, of heartache and pain would be soon over. And a season of redemption and rescue would be theirs. Lord, I thank you that with great boldness and courage, I can pray for that. Because, Lord, it is made so accessible, so evident for us right now in your son Jesus. God, you sent us the deliverer. Which tells me you see me. You hear me when I call. You act on my behalf. And not because of anything of myself, but your covenantal faithfulness where you said, I'll be yours and you'll be mine. We get to enter into a hope that is ours now and forevermore. So Lord, I pray you do that work in our hearts. And for anyone here who's maybe accepting that for the first time, you say in your word that we receive a relationship with you through repentance and faith. To say, God, I, I haven't had a fear of the Lord. I've thought I'm pretty big. 
And, and I'm hearing your word today, and I know I'm so small. Forgive me, and Lord, accept me, Jesus, that they would feel your presence, and you'd stir in their life. And I pray, Jesus, that you would equip this church to honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.